So, uh, tonight, uh, Michel uh, Foucault. Um, but I put up this little f- phrase from a lovely book by Merrold uh, Westphal called Suspicion and Faith. And I've had it up there. I, I asked Chris just to leave it so that you might meditate on that uh, whilst you've all been, been sitting there. Um, I think it's, we're in the Lenten season, you know, so Merrold Westphal, who's a Christian philosopher, says, yes, you heard me right, I propose the serious reading of people like Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, we've already had two of those, and their successors, that's me, I'd put that little bit in, as a Lenten penance. We should be reading them for Lent. Now, he's speaking here about three and maybe more serious um, atheist thinkers. He says, I like to think of them as the great modern theologians of original sin, And I think this is the killer line, really. For they can help us to see that religion can be a work of the flesh. What he's really saying is that we can practice religion for for motives uh, and and, and milk out of it practices that are as distant from Christianity as paganism. We can use religion and manipulate it in ways that really are to serve our own interests. And when these unbelieving philosophers point out such things... Westfall thinks they do the church a service, and I think he's right. Perhaps we ought to see such writers, and then he mentions, of course, two great Christian Protestant thinkers, along with Luther and Barth, as expressing a protest against the piety that reduces God to a means for achieving our own human purposes. So with that in mind, as a kind of rationale, I think I want, well, I think the phrase tonight is I want to do battle with um, Michel Foucault. Battle, uh, not in the sense that I want to attack him all night um, at all. Um, I think there's much to learn from. But battle because really this is, for me, a very difficult thinker. Um, This has tested me enormously, trying to get a, a grip on one of the most influential 20th century thinkers. Um who, um, as uh, David Ross said to me, gosh, he was a weird guy, wasn't he? Yeah. Michel Foucault, 1926 to 1984. Very complicated thinker. His work is very difficult to grasp. And it's very hard also, I think, to impose a coherence on, on this thinker. Um, But, of course, he didn't want a coherence to be imposed upon it for reasons that I think will become, I hope, clear as we we track along uh, along tonight. He has been hugely influential across the cultural domain. It may be that very few uh, of you have heard his name tonight, um, but you will have been influenced, and certainly any of you or your children who study almost any humanities or social science um, in any university these days, will come across uh, the name of Michel Foucault. So here's my attempt to convey something of the flavor of this difficult and radical and very challenging thinker um, tonight. Now that's lives. It's not lives. (laughs) And I'm using the plural, the lives of Michel Foucault for for the reason that I want to respect him. Because he wanted to defy the notion that any of us live a single or simple life. 
that in some important and complicated way we're all masses of contradictions and that we can be very different people in very, very different circumstances. And the notion, therefore, of there being a single coherent life is, is one that he himself wanted to resist. Now, there's some truth in that. There's always a difference between a life lived and a life told. A biographer will impose a coherence and a clarity on a life which, in the living of that life, probably was nothing like it at all. Because of the contradictions, the uncertainties, the surprising things, the contingencies, and then we impose coherence on them. Maybe we even do it in our own autobiographies. But Foucault wanted to resist that. So I'm going to try and answer the question, who is Michel Foucault? So let's ask him. Foucault, who are you? Don't ask me who I am. And don't ask me to remain the same. And then an altogether strange comment. Let us leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. What can he mean by that? Well, he means by that something like this. We get constructed in very different ways, not only in our own lives, but also by things like the state, by the way in which we will be, all of us, reduced to some papers at the time of our death. There will be a paper that states our birth, perhaps uh, a paper that states a wedding, the, the, the birth of a child. The bureaucracy of the state defines us in certain ways. The school that we went to defines us in certain kinds of ways. The job that we do impresses itself on us and makes us into the kinds of people that we are. Our family life is different. Don't ask who I am and don't ask me to remain the same. The bureaucracy of the state that we live in, they'll do their job, but don't think that's really us. So I'm still going to try and answer the question, who is Michel Foucault nonetheless? So he is, or was, what you might call a French master thinker, and achieved really a very, very high public profile as a public intellectual at the pinnacle of French academic life. And since his death, his fame has been increasing. Um, uh, the, the citations to his works are seemingly limitless. Um, um, if you look up any of the, the ways in which we, we gauge um, intellectual influence in the world through people's work being read and cited, um, the numbers that come up from Michel Foucault are just astonishing. He was also, though, an emotionally troubled son of an authoritarian physician who was his father. And he was therefore a person who was desperately seeking for liberation wherever he might find it. Liberation from the norms of the society, liberation from what he considered the repressive tyranny of modern society, particularly the repressive tyranny of the state. He died a victim of AIDS, probably having contracted AIDS in the bathhouses of San Francisco. And he was also an activist in a, in a, in a wide range of different social and political causes always as an advocate of freedom. He was, again, he was a supporter of prison reform, gay liberation, the anti-psychiatry movement. And his work, I think, is seen by many 
as, what can I say, providing us with a toolbox, a set of tools to oppose the tyrannies that he feels we live under in the modern world. Whether you think we live under these tyrannies or not, we'll we'll see as the evening goes on as we look at some of the, the examples of the work that he was engaged in. So why Foucault? I've already stressed his huge influence um, across uh, so many spheres of intellectual endeavor, sociology, history, literature, anthropology, the list goes on and on. And I think what's interesting about him too is that what he's really out to do is to challenge any of those narratives that try to make sense of everything. Whether it be Marxism, or whether it be Freudianism, or whether it be Christianity, or whether it be any religious system, he considers these, all of these systems to be tyrannical. And he's out to challenge what has fashionably been called the meta-narratives, the grand narratives, the big stories of our age. He's impossible to classify. He's part Marxist, part Enlightenment liberal, part postmodernist, very difficult. But what's remarkably interesting about him is that for all the difficulty of his work, it's it's in his narratives and in his accounts of very, very particular concrete examples that the power of his thinking becomes visible. And I'm going to be talking about some of these tonight. Um, Hospitals, asylums, schools, prisons. These are the places where he unearths the very structures of the society that he believes exercise such enormous power over us. So what I want to do for a few minutes is to develop what I'm going to call Foucault's apparatus. The concepts that he uses in order to try and interrogate the society of which he and we are a part. <clears throat> and I've got maybe what, four or five of these concepts. They're going to sound abstract. We're going to work through them slowly, slowly as we can, try to get a sense of what um, his key ideas are, and then we're going to look at three areas in which he applies them. So let's deal with, as we, as, as, if I can put it this way, the tools of his trade, first of all. What are the key ideas that he had? And then we'll turn to two or three of the arenas um, in which he deployed these for um, the purposes of deconstructing them, breaking them apart, and trying to see what's really going on beneath, uh, beneath the surface. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. Now, I think his, perhaps his earliest and, and maybe his most, uh, most important concept is, uh, comes from this book um, entitled The Archaeology of Knowledge. Now, it's one of two. The, the other one was about um, genealogy of knowledge. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail in both of these or separate them out. They can be separated in important ways, but, but for the purposes of tonight, I want to treat them both together. Now, what was he after with the notion of the archaeology of knowledge? Well, it was basically this. It was to do with digging into history. Digging beneath the surface of the way we talk about things 
and to try and under, underneath those uh, systems of writing to discern the exercise of power. So fundamental here is that he's going back to read documents not so much for what people said but for the ways in which what they said was made possible or impossible by the society that they lived in. Let me give you an example. So if you go back to, say, the medieval period, you don't find people talking about the, the movement of the, of the planets um, uh, uh, around, the, around the sun. Uh, you see the sphere of the fixed stars, the notion that the heavenly bodies could move at all. Um, um, and anything other than the planets around the earth was an impossible thought. The notion that the earth could move around the sun was an impossible thought. The language wasn't available, he would have said. It was a different way of thinking. And then when we read these people, we're able to read what was unthinkable in their world as well as what was a thinkable thing. Archaeology, then, is the task of digging back into the language that people used But their purpose is to uncover the constraints and the potentials that render certain forms of thought possible and render other forms of thought entirely impossible. So you're reading to get into the thought forms of the era, to get into the systems of thought that underlie the pronouncements that that are made. Now what he wants to argue here is that When we do this, when we dig back into, say, principles that are being enunciated, what look like universal principles turn out to be in the very particular interests of certain people. What looks to be something really high, a standard or a principle, turns out to be something really low, a vice or an attempt to manipulate somebody. What looks to be transcendental turns out to be really about this world, to be absolutely mundane. What looks like morality turns out to be a story of how some people have manipulated others. What looks like high principle turns out to be low vice. Now this is what his approach is all about. It's, the aim is to, what, and he uses a nice phrase, to, to work on a history of the present. When we look back to how morality has been used to manipulate certain people, he's really talking about our own day. And he's asking us always to be suspicious about those who are delivering to us their morality because they're trying to control us, they're trying to manipulate us in some important kind of way. So his aim is not, in his historical work, to understand the past for its own sake. It is to understand the past as a means of providing a critique of the present. So when he goes back to asylums in the 18th century, he's actually talking about the world you and I live in, and I'll try and demonstrate that when we get to that, uh, uh, that point. Now, the second concept that he has is... Therefore, what he calls it, this tricky concept, discursive regimes. And what he means by that is, we all live in 
a society where we talk about things in certain kinds of ways. And we talk about things in certain kinds of ways. They provide the frameworks within which we live our lives. These, these regimes of talk allow things in and also keep things out. And we take them for granted. And he's got a lovely, lovely illustration of this. It's a humorous one, I think, and I hope you'll, uh, you'll see what he's after. Uh, at the start of one of his books called The Order of Things, he takes a quotation from, from the, the novelist Borges on the classification of animals from a Chinese, an ancient Chinese encyclopedia. And this is the way they classified animals, according to Borges. One, animals which belong to the emperor. Animals that are embalmed. Animals that are tame. Sucking pigs. Uh, Sirens. Fabulous. Stray dogs. Those included in the present classification. A frenzied. Is this a description of Fitzroy? Innumerable. Those that can be drawn with a very fine camel hair brush, etc. Having just broken the water pitcher, and those that from a long way off look like flies. Now here's the thing. We can't make sense of it. I don't think we can make sense. Can anybody make sense of it? No, of course not. It's a fundamentally, it's alien. It's a very, very different way of thinking. It's, it is to us an impossible way. Who could think about the world that way? It's an impossible way to think about the world. It's a pre-modern way of thinking. And if we were back in the pre-modern or the ancient Chinese era, we could make sense of this. Because it is a classification system based on some other kind of method of classifying that we just can't get get a handle on. What? It's in a different discursive regime. It's not one that we understand, but it's one that made sense to them. We live in a modern discursive regime. We have different ways of ordering. We have our own ways of ordering. But what he wants to say is, therefore, many things have gone from one to another way of ordering. Give you an example. We think that madness is just mental illness. We bring medical vocabulary to the understanding of the mad. But in the past, in the medieval period, it wasn't thought to be an illness at all. It was thought about in very different ways. Manifestation of the devil. Um, Monstrous not human, variety of ways. We live in a modern discursive regime that thinks about it in the language of medicine. But as we'll see in the pre-modern period, it was thought about in an entirely different way. We read these words to understand the system of thought that renders certain things possible and impossible. So the task, he thinks, in his third bit of apparatus is that we should be unmasking all the time, stripping away the surface to show that really our institutions, no matter how sacred they are, 
no matter how respected, no matter how revered, to show that we should unmask them and show what they are really like underneath. That in fact, they might seem divinely sanctioned, but to use Nietzsche's phrase, they really are human, all too human. His aim is to remove the veil. Remove the veil and see what's going on underneath the surface. It's to deconstruct every certainty that you and I actually hold on to. The uh, Catholic philosopher Gary Gutting puts this quite nicely. His project, his philosophical project, is directed not towards the truth, but towards contingencies masked as necessities. Things that are just happenstance being presented as though they are absolute divine certainty. So he's not trying to figure out the truth. He's trying to unmask the claims to truth and show what they are. Now Foucault thinks that there's a very, very close connection between three things. You can see where I've been going now quite clearly, I think, unmasking knowledge claims, that they are exercising power, that they are to do with manipulation, they are to do with control, they are to do with everything that's not liberation. They are to do with hemming you in, stopping who you really are, preventing you getting in touch with who you really want to be, control. And he thinks that they work through institutions and spaces in our society. There's an intimate connection between knowledge, power, and particular places. Particular places exercise enormous power over people, over bodies, over practices. Now, you don't need to think very far to see that there's a lot of truth in this. Take, for example, the courtroom. I think we have someone from the courtroom here. Isn't this a place of enormous power in our society? If that man there declares you innocent or guilty, he's exercising astonishing power over you. In an asylum, you can be judged to be sane or insane. The knowledge, the space, and the power, just stunning. Think about a church, many churches. They can make the distinction between the saved and the lost, exercising enormous power. So what look like benign institutions turn out to be institutions that are forever controlling us, classifying us, putting us in pigeonholes, distinguishing between the good, the bad, the strong, the weak, the right, the wrong, the innocent, the guilty, the sane, the insane, the saved, the lost. You could go down a list of these. Power works its way out through the institutions of our society. And I'll get back to some examples of of that. Because you see, the language that these places use, they don't circulate in some disembodied form. They're really embedded, embedded in these places, and then they transform you into a saved person. Or they transform you into a guilty person. Or they transform you into an insane person. The language begins to constitute your very identity. And you come to think of yourself in the vocabulary that has been imposed upon you, you all with me, by these, by these repressive institutions. 
Now it's easy to see where Foucault is going after that claim. He's going now to the way in which the state subjects us all to governance. The state's power exercises an enormous influence over every one of us. It's totalizing. And it's done it, Fugel thinks, in two ways. The first way is that the state more and more treats you and me as mere objects. We are objects that can be measured, molded, shaped, operated on, invaded, and defined in many, many, many similar ways. I'll get to one or two modern examples of that um, in due course, but you just think of the practices of the state. Censuses, league tables, all these ways we are subject to a measurement that is imposed upon us by the state. And this is, secondly, what he calls the art of government. We are told how to manage our households, how to manage our provinces. In the past, there have been, uh, there, there have been documents produced to manage the family, uh, the right way to bring up children, what to do, what to avoid, and so on. He's got a very interesting little phrase about this, if we can just turn to it. The, the art of government is concerned with how to, reduce, how to introduce economy. That is the correct manner of managing households goods and wealth within the family, how to introduce this meticulous attention of the father towards his family into the management of the state. So now we have to manage things. We manage schools. We manage the charity sector. We manage universities. We manage churches. We use exactly the same vocabulary of what he thinks of as a repressive set of of practices to bring everything under what he calls, I think I might be getting towards the end of the last piece of apparatus here, surveillance. We're constantly being watched. And the purpose of being watched is to make us all the same, make us all into the same kinds of consumers. We're disciplined by a society to become consumers. We're part of a discursive regime that thinks about commodities in just the same way. And there are people who spend whole careers in predicting, if you put this advert on TV, what, per- what percentage of the, um, of the population is going to go and buy that uh, item in the next two weeks. We're constantly under surveillance. And he uses a very, very interesting 19th century instrument which he thinks is dominant still in our own world. And it was called, here's an example of it, it was called the panopticon. Now, the panopticon was a device that was invented by the thinker Jeremy Bentham for watching people and for imposing a discipline on them. Uh, This, I think, actually was um, um, his panopticon for observing inmates in... I think it was, I think it was a, a mental institution of some sort, but it could equally well be a prison. And what you have then here, you see, is a tower at the center, and you get this series of buildings radiating out from it, and the person who's in the tower can see everybody else and watch them, but they can't see him back. He's able to monitor every single activity and every single movement and every single thing that they do and register it. 
keep a surveillant eye upon them. And then when they stepped out of line, able to normalize them, able to bring them back to the way that institution wanted them to behave. Now this is what he says is the exercise of anonymous power in society. One person at the center, the others don't get to see him, but he gets to see everything that's, that's going on. And this is exactly what happens in many modern prisons. There are the inmates all around, and the person at the center is watching. Now, what Foucault wants to say is that this is simply a manifestation of what's going on in our society every day of the year. The surveillance watches, whether it's the schoolboy, the worker, whether it's the prisoner, whether it's the inmate, and this system, this panopticon, exercises power over their bodies, over their minds, over how they behave. It's designed to normalize. It's designed to make them the same. And it's not too hard to think that he might be right when you think of an image like this. The extent to which the state is watching us all the time, keeping an eye. This is what uh, the Christian sociologist David Lyons calls electronic panopticism. Whether it's CT cameras, whether it's um, uh, when you, every time you travel, uh, putting your fingerprint, whether it's now getting your eyes photographed, in all these ways, we are constantly under the surveillance power of the state. Whether it's to do with transparency reviews, performance targets, league tables, all this kind of thing, the state is constantly reducing us to objects that can be measured to control us. And he thinks this is something that we really ought to resist. Well, those are the concepts. And, um, you know, some of them are easy enough. Some of them are difficult enough, I think. Um, But that's the kind of way this man wants to think. And so what I want to do now for just the rest of this talk is to just talk you through three examples of where he has been applying some of these concepts. I mean, I'll not go back through all the concepts each time. You, you can see how they, how they relate themselves. But three arenas where he has applied this toolbox, this apparatus, um, with, I think, interesting and challenging effects. Uh, the first one um, comes out of this book that he wrote called Madness and Civilization. He's very interested in the history of the psychiatric movement. And uh, very interested, I think, in, in how we have, if, as it were, managed the mentally ill, managed madness, uh, more or less since the 17th and 18th, 18th century. Now, I've just got two or three points under each, each one of these, um, Foucault himself had spent spent some time um, in an asylum, and I think this, as with the other um, examples, come out of his own personal experience. Um, So I think that his philosophical um, uh, interventions are not at all divorced from the realities of the life that he actually lived, experiencing something of what being in um, an institution of this sort uh, might mean. So here's his first question. We treat... Madness and mental illness as the same thing. Of course, that wasn't always the case. If we go back to a different discursive regime, the mad were thought to be in league with the devil, possessed in some way, subhuman. 
Now we use the language of mental illness. And we consider that those earlier ways of thinking about the mad were an era of ignorance, an era of unknowing. And we're now more than enlightened. That, he says, is the standard history of, of, of the psychiatric movement. Uh, some of the great uh, um, uh, figures in the history of psychiatry, like Pinel, challenged the view that the mad were beasts because they were often chained. They were just chained and left for the rest of their lives. Pinel didn't want that to happen. And so he and others, like Samuel Chug, a Quaker, founded an asylum. And the asylum, therefore, became a means of treating the mad in a more enlightened way. Now, Foucault wants to challenge that rosy view of progress. He says, of course, they were freed from chains, but they were enslaved in other ways. They were subject to very strict monitoring of the panopticon type. He argues that what the psychiatrists were really trying to do was just to instill the virtues, the perceived values of the society that they were in into these people who were just different or other. He wanted to, in, they wanted to insert the values of the bourgeois into these people who defied the logic of, of the system of which they were a part. This, he said, was a moral project dressed up in the language of medicine. So it looked as if they had more freedom whenever they were released from their chains, but did they? Actually, they were moved into a space of observation, diagnosis, therapeutics. He calls it a gigantic moral imprisonment. And he was outraged by it, maybe because he'd experienced it, because he felt it was simply trying to normalize into, into the regime of their day. A gigantic moral imprisonment. Now, I told you you wanted to connect space with uh, places with this, and I, I want to work through just a little bit of this with you for a minute or two. If I were to say to you, what is unreason? What is irrational? Foucault would say to you, the best place to go look is in an asylum. If there's ever a space that is beyond reason, unreason, reason is gone, reason doesn't, uh, rationality doesn't, doesn't prevail, it would be an asylum. Now, when he went back to look at the early days of the asylum in Paris, the Salpetriere, he found a very interesting thing. Of course, in there were people whom we would now describe as mentally ill. But incarcerated in the Salpetriere, this asylum for the mad, where itinerant workers, the homeless, um, vagrants, gypsies, those who defied the logic of the French state, they were classed as the unreason. Now, thankfully, we don't do that now. But what Foucault was saying is, what is reasonable depends on the society that you're living in. What we think of reasonable would be entirely unreasonable to those in the Middle Ages, just as they seem unreasonable to us. 
What we think of as reason is nothing but the logic of our own state. It isn't anything transcendental or, or eternal. So it is through these spaces that enormous power gets exercised. I mean, it's interesting if you go back to the, the Middle Ages, the historian of, um, of medicine, Roy Porter, makes the observation that so-called lunatics were typically, in the early period, they remained at large. They were responsibility of their families. They were under the eye of the parish. Foucault says that when we get into the 19th century, we get something called the Great Confinement, the removing of unreason from the society because they defied the rational order of the French enlightened, enlightened state. And so, this is this word mentioned a couple times, governmentality. They're there to be normalized. They are there to, to obey the logic of the moral demands of a society that cannot cope with serious difference. They are placed under the authority of figures who are experts, doctors and the like, and the point is that they are subjected to the rationalizing logic of the modern, the modern world. Now, a second arena is a great interest in, in prisons. I think he worked for a while as, a, as an assistant orderly um, in a prison, and I think, again, his interest is coming out of his own, own personal experience, and he writes these, uh, this book, Discipline and Punishment, Discipline and Punish, the birth, of the, the birth of the prison. Now again, traditionally this is a story of moving from barbarity to humane treatment. And he wants to challenge that. So I'm going to begin with a little subtitle he has. It might even be the, uh, uh, I think it's the title of the very first chapter of Discipline and Punishment. It's called Torture and a Timetable. And I'm going to put up uh, some things uh, for you to read descriptions here just, just in a second. So he begins with a couple of stories. On the 2nd of March, 1775, a man called Damien was condemned for attacking the king to make what was called an amende honorable. He was to make an honorable amends um, for um, having, having um, attacked in a very minor way, uh, the king, accused of regicide, but also parricide because he was trying to attack the father of the nation. And he's brought before the door of the church in Paris. Now, from that door, he was to be, and I'm quoting, taken and conveyed in a cart, this is 1757, wearing nothing but a shirt, holding a torch of burning wax, weighing two pounds. And he was to be taken, now, we'll take this slowly, in the said cart to the Place de Grer, where on a scaffold that will be erected there. Now this is, this is a quotation from the time. The flesh will be torn from his breasts, arms, thighs, and calves with red-hot pincers. His right hand holding the knife with which he committed the said parasite burnt with sulfur. And on those places where the flesh will be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, you with me? Burning resin, wax and sulfur melted together, and then his body drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and his ashes thrown to the winds. Pretty, pretty clear. 
Finally, according to the Gazette d'Amsterdam, he was quartered on the 1st of April. This went on for about a month, 1757. Finally, I would always say he was quartered. The last operation was very long because the horses used were not accustomed to drawing. Consequently, instead of four, six were needed. And when that didn't suffice, they were forced in order to cut off the wretch's thighs to sever the sinews and hack the joints. Now, this is only the first page of what Foucault goes on for about ten pages describing in detail the death of this miserable individual. For paragraph after paragraph, he uses that 1757 description to build up to a truly horrendous account of this public torture. It goes on, I'll not put this up. The horses tugged hard, each pulling on a limb. After a quarter of an hour, the same ceremony was repeated, and finally, after several attempts, the direction of the horses had to be changed. Two more horses had to be added. Without success, I mean, can you imagine this? I better stop, hadn't I? Let me just say, this was simply because Robert Damien had rushed up to Louis XV in January of that year with a knife and inflicted a very light wound upon him. And that was his punishment. Now what Fugu does is he moves the clock on 80 years to a more enlightened period, 1837. And he goes there from torture to 1837 to a timetable. And he makes no comment. He just quotes, rules for behavior in a detention center for young offenders in Paris. These were the rules. The prisoner's day will begin at six in the morning in winter and five in summer. They'll work for nine hours a day throughout the year. Two hours a day will be devoted to instruction. Work will end at nine o'clock in winter and eight in summer. And when we get this far, then Foucault says, here we have a public execution and a timetable. Two ways of punishing. The second one is gentler, isn't it? It's newer. It's a new regime. The second is the beginnings of a new way of thinking about the criminal. Imprisonment is better than torture, isn't it? Well, Foucault says, really, really is it? Is it really, he wonders. Now, there are comments, there are, there are contrasts between the two. But when we get into this so-called gentler side, he thinks it's actually a pretty dark alternative. What's happening now is that there are practices that are to discipline bodies for years and years and years. The aim is not to simply punish for a crime committed horrible though the first one was, but it is actually to incarcerate a person for years to make them docile, to subject them to discipline. It seems gentler, but ordered assemblies, incarceration, forced labor, day after day after day after day, for month upon month, year upon year, until a person is considered docile enough to return to society. Foucault wonders really if drilling and training and discipline, all these regimes, 
if they really are actually perhaps more repressive than what happened with Damiens back in uh, the latter part of the, of the 18th century. So what's his intention here? His intention is an analysis of our supposedly humanitarian way of treating those who are on the margins. It's the way we want to treat those who are beyond the norm. And it shows how the treatment involves its own form of domination. He talks about efforts to discipline groups like members of religious minorities, homosexuals, migrant workers, things of this sort, perhaps for biographical reasons, who stand marginalized. He thinks the society and the state exercises disciplinary power of all kinds to try and normalize them. The prison, he thinks, is simply a microcosm of society. Well, I'm almost done with uh, the three examples, and then we'll get to perhaps just a little bit of um, Christian thinking about this. The history of sexuality. This is where he connects up a lot with, with um, uh, Stephen talking about Freud, Freud last week. Sexuality, um, three-volume set, hugely influential, called um, uh, History of Sexuality. The first one, very, very interesting subtitle there, The Will to Know. The Will to Know. And it just got a couple of, um, couple of little concepts here that um, it's worth talking about. Now, part of his idea here is that sexuality moved from what he calls the zone of pleasure, the erotic arts, to a science of sexuality. Now, ironically, um, what he says is that we have become more and more interested in mere technique and the science of sex than any other generation before. But he thinks there's a kind of interesting prehistory to this. And what he's after here is, is this, that the language that we talk produces the kind of sexual beings that we are. The language that we use about this produces the kind of sexual beings that we are. Now, his first port of call is an interesting one. It's the old church's confessional and the way people were supposed to confess their sins. And when you go back to look at these, back into the Middle Ages and so on, what you find, of course, is an obsession with matters of sexual ethics. And what you find are classifications of sexual misdemeanors, which, frankly, when you read them, you haven't a clue what they're actually talking about. More and more and more analysis of the person coming to confession with lists of possible, possible wrongdoing that, that became the way in which they confessed their sins. They were had to engage in a kind of personal analysis to do this. And Foucault says then they came to think of themselves in the language that was being used for the confessional. Here's his argument. Very big claim here. One's sexual nature is never discovered. It's produced by the language that we are required to use in our society. In the confessional, it was produced by the language people were required to use for self-examination. Gary Gutting again. What I am sexually depends on the categories that I'm required to use in making my confession. He thinks this is repressive. But he thinks it's got an enormous hold on the modern world. 
He had this rather interesting thing, and then I wasn't sure what to make of this. Western man has become a confessing animal. I wonder what he meant by that. And then, of course, um, because I'm on research leave, I, I have been um, indulging in going in to work a little bit later in the mornings. Boy, have you ever watched morning television? The amount of confession that goes on on those morning um, TV shows where people are confessing misdemeanors and relationships of all kinds, reality TV shows, autobiographical revelations, never mind newspapers, a huge confessing impulse. Now, I'm not going to say anything now in the interest of time about policing and biopower, which I was going to say something about. I just want to get to Of course, his argument here is that those who are on the sexual margins have been produced that way by the discursive regime we live in. It's not that there is misdemeanor, it's just that there's difference. Hence his interest in returning to ancient Greek society and to the sexual freedom, absolute freedom, that seemed to characterize that society. We have medicalized, he says, aberration. But like Friedrich Nietzsche, he thinks that The rise of Christian morality was a corruption, a slave morality, and a corruption of an earlier, freer way of living. Hence, his going back to the Greek world and the Roman world to find examples of genuine sexual liberation. That's a quick skelly through this weird and difficult but influential thinker. How in the church should we start thinking about this? I've only got a few, a few thoughts. Um, cr- criticisms, perhaps. Um, lessons, yes. How are we going to react to a figure like this? I mean, maybe some of you have been saying, what have I been, what have I been doing here tonight in Fitzroy for the past hour, listening to this guff? I mean, what's the point of being here? Well, that relates quite nicely to my very first point. We can react in one of two ways to a figure like Foucault. This is Westfall's suggestion. We can hide our heads in the sand and hope that it'll go away. Just ignore people like this. Say, too difficult. Nothing to do with me. It's too complicated. Nothing to do with everyday life. It's self-indulgent. It's far too scary. Don't bother engaging at all. I think that's a massive mistake. We don't have to agree at all with a figure like this to say that he's being hugely influential. We've got to engage with him. Or we can treat him as a bogeyman, that he's the incarnation of everything that's the antithesis of what Christian morality is, everything the church hates. He's relativist, he's subversive, he's atheistic. And therefore, many Christians have demonized him. I think both of these reactions are wrong. We've got to engage with a figure like this, and we've got to engage seriously with him without demonizing him, maybe even asking, is there anything that we can learn from him? from him. The tyranny of those regimes. I think Foucault has made way too much of the regimes within which we are supposed to be located. Of course we're located, but locatedness is uh, inescapable, of course, in many ways. But there are ways in which we can be self-critical of the regimes of which we're a part, and I think that's what the church should be doing. Challenging the repressive regimes of our time when we see them, all the while making sure that we're not creating one ourselves. I think a third principle is what I'm calling, the title here become clear in a, in a minute, 
The problem is that if we are as bound to these discursive regimes as Foucault thinks, then every moral choice that we make is actually just a reflection of the regime that we find ourselves in. How would we make choices for the causes that we could advocate unless we had something that was not so dependent on where we're located? Foucault himself treats this in a very simple way. Anybody who's marginalized, he stands with. But then you think, what about some obscure group, some obscure chapter of a pedophile organization? Should we just automatically stand with that marginalized? Marginality can never be enough. We need some form of moral grounding. And it's interesting that some critics think that Foucault's politics is disabled, the things he stands for, by the very fact of him being regime-determined himself. I mean, he has, he's been involved in many, had been involved in many, many uh, protests, the support of many uh, groups on the margins, and as I say, many of them mirrored his own personal orientations. But critics have said that this is without any good reason. He doesn't have a moral grounding for this. And indeed, as, as some have pointed out, siding with certain marginal groups can be deeply troublesome, not least when, as this one indicated, he sided with the Ayatollah Khomeini um, some years ago, raised many of the eyebrows from the radicals in, in France, wondering why he would go with a group of, of this sort. Foucault has been critical about discipline. He's uncovered the power of discipline in society and how it shapes us. Society has shaped every one of you here tonight into a consumer by the forms of modern culture that we find ourselves in. We are being molded, every one of us, into faithful servants of modern capitalism. And the church is complicit. We take over its business models. We take over its uh, apparatus. But I do think that all power and discipline doesn't have to be about domination. Consider the spiritual disciplines. In the history of the church, many of these disciplines are about service, not about domination. It all depends on the ends towards which discipline or disciplinary formation is directed. But we've got to be very careful when we engage in so-called discipline that we're not falling into, I think, Foucault's trap. Unmasking. A massive element in, in what he's doing, stripping away the surface to see the power operations. In his book, Till Justice and Peace Embrace, Nick Walterstorff says this very telling. There is yet one more path towards the goal of becoming self-critical. And indeed, it's the most direct of all. It's the path of listening attentively to the prophetic word of the scriptures. How does he describe the Bible? That great unmasker of self-deceit. Attending, I think, to Christianity as itself unmasking every single one of our own pretenses is a, is, is a challenging and, and, and I think a scary thing. I think what I'm after here is wonderfully brought out in the, reading, in the writings of Neil Plantinga. Neil Plantinga says something like this, Evil always does its best to look good. In order to survive, vices have to masquerade as virtues. 
Lust pretends to be love. Sadism disguises itself as military discipline. Envy poses as righteous indignation. Domestic tyranny pretends that it's really parental concern. The church should be engaged in the unmasking business. Only two, two points to go. Power and pretense. Foucault follows Nietzsche in considering that claims to truth are just the will to power. Every time you claim truth, you're trying to exercise power over another person, another object, or whatever. Now, there are some problems, I think, in how Foucault conceives of power. And I think we could, we could unpack them. Maybe we will in, in discussion. But I think that we should really always ask ourselves, within the church, to what extent are we really interested in following the truth or trying to exercise power? Westfall puts it this way. Reason has the habit of directing its critique at them rather than us. It has got the habit of minimizing the speck in our eyes by fulminating about the log in their eyes. The Bible gives no such moral holidays to the people of God. Perspectival, perspectival knowledge and the God's eye view. Foucault, of course, and everybody else challenges that there is a God's eye view. Every postmodernist does this. There's no view that's from God's perspective. And I think there is a God's eye view, but I don't think that we have much access, access to that. We are located... Our beliefs are shaped by the society we live in. They're shaped by our culture, by our education, by our race, by our class, by our age. The Bible supports this. It says we hold the truth, but we hold it in earthen vessels. We are not God. And all our efforts to arrogate to ourselves that stance, I think, is condemned in Scripture. We have to accept this. But we have to be aware of it and ask ourselves, continually, are we being molded more by the demands of the state, the demands of our bank balance, or by the transformative word of, of God? And that's all I have to say. I'm just going to leave you with, on the board, you can ponder on these three questions that I think Foucault asks us to think about tonight. So here they are. What would you consider to be some of the real components of a Christian theology of power? What would a Christian theology of power look like? In what ways does the church exercise power? And in what ways should it exercise power? What relationship should the Christian church sustain towards the dominant discursive regimes of our time? And then that, going back to Westfall, where I began. Westfall considers some postmodern thinkers as secular theologians of original sin. I don't know if that's true of Foucault, but he's made me think.